Christina Crucis, Denimicis Nostris, Liminos Deus Noster. Nome Patris, Sit Filiat, Spiritus Sancti. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for you. Lord, help us to converse with you about dialoguing with you throughout our day, using that phrase of St. Jose Maria, our call to be contemplatives in the middle of the world. Jesus, tell us what this means, not just factually, but communicate your will to our very hearts. Help us understand this with our heart so that we convert. St. Luke is the evangelist that captures our Lord's teaching on prayer in a very special way. Various parts of his gospel, he alludes to Jesus' will and quotes Jesus as well, that we should always be in a state of prayer. So it's not anything the gospel tells us is not a goal that is outlandish. Challenging, yes. Without his help, impossible. But it's not a truth or a goal that is irrelevant to us, especially with our calling to witness him and to be sowers of peace and joy. Luke takes the liberty to summarize Jesus' teaching in chapter 8, 1 of his gospel, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So there we have it. It wasn't, you know, a select group who heard these ideas or these words. Anybody who wants to follow him must be on that wavelength. Jesus, what does it mean to be in constant dialogue with you? At the Last Supper, which include Jesus' most profound words, his most important words, because they are addressed exclusively to his followers. And it stands to reason that the teachings of the Last Supper had never been shared before. They're new words new actions, very profound. And he gives that image of the vine and the branches. And for our purposes, this fits in well with our call to be always in a state of prayer. Because the vine and the branch are always united. And it also explains how this kingdom of God grows. 
and what is a necessary condition. Jesus says, without me you could do nothing. Unless that branch is always united to the vine, the branch cannot bear fruit of holiness, the fruit of charity, the fruit of that new commandment. So that's the image he gives the apostles before he cuts them loose for the very first evangelization, which is now the new evangelization. It's new because the old evangelization has been hibernating for millennia. The new evangelization were ordinary folk who committed themselves to Christ and they evangelized. It was a complete mobilization of the church, but the frontline evangelizers were the laity. And our Lord says, the condition to bear fruit is to be always connected with our Lord. It's a great analogy. Then he contrasts this union of the branch with the vine with the branch being separated from the vine, detached from the vine. That cannot bear fruit. What if it's a quality branch? It could be a terrific branch, a healthy-looking branch, a branch that comes from a tree or a plant of the highest quality. But if it's severed from its trunk or the roots, it cannot bear fruit. So it's a wonderful and very profound, but at the same time very simple. And since my calling is to evangelize, to witness, to attract, to encounter, using the words of our Holy Father, to carry out a constant work of apostolate, I need to be connected with them all the time. And he says, then, if you're not, it doesn't work. Because the branch can't be intermittently detached from the vine. It's better than complete detachment. But we, you know, we don't need too much convincing to realize it's a very efficient way of bearing fruit to sever a, a branch and then graft it back on and then sever it again and graft it back on. The branch won't die, but it won't bear fruit. Paul's epistles are very rich and very distinct. But there are common threads running through his teachings, his epistles. He speaks about his own prayer. When he writes to the different churches, he says he's always praying for them, or he's always giving thanks. So that constant prayer emerges often in the teachings of St. Paul. This other analogy he uses is to put him on, put on Jesus Christ. Who would hear these letters? I don't know, maybe 50 people? 
Where would they gather? In, in a bigger house? They'd celebrate the liturgy. All these early churches had RCIA programs. And they had, God, it was Opus Dei-ish. You'd have always a kind of a, a dearth of priests. And you had elders, you had directors of groups, people who were more experienced in this. Christianity was new, they would give spiritual direction, they would give instruction. And to join, you really needed to know what you were doing. You were reminded that it's going to be uh, rough sailing if you sign on the dotted line, so when you think about it, you didn't get baptized for a couple of years. They really wanted you to be ready for it. You'd get warned, hey, this could uh, cost your life, you could be arrested. But uh, as we have been studying the Trinity, the Holy Spirit made it happen. And we see here how Paul urged this particular church in Ephesus that they really needed to be contemplative. And Paul also, another common thread running into his teaching, that he is very much aware, and he reminds his listeners that he's aware of the obstacles that, humanly speaking, are quite insurmountable. Since the mores of that pagan world flew in the face of everything Jesus said, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Very rich imagery. He's exhorting those Ephesians, those Christian Ephesians, that in their war of love and peace, they're dealing with forces of evil, that the evil one is waging war against Christ. And the weaponry he uses are images of warfare. Even though, in reality, those images are metaphors of love. But he uses metaphors of warfare. This armor of God. Stand therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, or holiness, and having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace, Above all, taking the shield of faith, which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one. And let's always translate faith into holiness. That's when faith is completely developed, when one pursues holiness, when one embraces everything Jesus says and tries to live it. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and then he wraps it up. Pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. So that was the instruction those first followers of Jesus heard. In the course of three centuries, 
They made a significant dent in that pagan world, a world very similar to ours. They didn't have Google Maps, so it was a bit, you know, there were some differences. They didn't have Facebook or Internet, but the moral situation was very similar. It was pre-Christian and pre-knowledge of the moral law, as it were, and now it's post-Christian and moral relativism. Similar, not the same. Though we have a different spirituality, I just want to bring in another historical situation in the early church, an event. Well, after the early Christians made a dent in that pagan world, the culture changed. The empire was invaded by hordes of Germanic tribes, barbarians that had a completely different culture than the Roman culture. Cities began to disintegrate. Rome was reduced to a village. And the waterways, the roadways were unusable because of those invasions. And a profound discouragement invaded the world and temptations towards despair, immorality, even among the Christians, because of these invasions and the violence and the destruction of, of a civilization. And so there was a movement to leave the cities because it was very difficult to follow Christ under those conditions. I'm giving you very much the cliff note version the leader of the movement, a number of them, but uh, for our purposes here, St. Benedict, who has the reputation of saving Western civilization. And so there's a movement of monasticism. And you would start these communities in very isolated places. So even today, if you go through Europe, Europe is just spotted by former monasteries and convents. And why did they do it? to devote their whole life to dialogue with Christ. Mental prayer, they called it Lexio Divina, meditate on scripture, they're centered around the Eucharist, practice penance, and they would isolate themselves to be contemplative, to dialogue with our Lord. Because the ambiance that is necessary to be a contemplative, whether it's the middle of the world or outside the world, is silence. We need some silence. It was silent. And that's how, it was a movement of the Holy Spirit, obviously, and that's how the Germanic tribes converted. And we see throughout the history of the church that the foundation of changing the world is contemplation, is dialogue with our Lord. This reminds me of an anecdote of St. Jose Maria, I don't know if I would have the uh, courage to speak that directly, but uh, an important prelate, probably a cardinal, went to visit him after the close of the Second Vatican Council. And what the Second Vatican Council did was resurrect in an official and solemn way the mindset of early Christianity with its universal call to sanctity, with this rich teaching that the modern world is the domain of the laity 
the laity of the church are called to bring that modern world back to Christ. And they're called to be holy. And they are now seen not as filler, but protagonists in this work of extending the kingdom. And so this cardinal comes to headquarters, Villa Tevere. Many bishops and cardinals were visiting St. Jose Maria during the council years, and he came to congratulate him. I think he was congratulated probably many times, but at least I know of twice when St. Joseph was put in the Eucharistic prayer, first Eucharistic prayer, and Benedict put Joseph in the other ones. Always helps to be named Joseph to be moved to do that. And then he was congratulated because, you know, what he saw and what was criticized, I mean, criticized to such an extent that he was uh, dubbed as a heretic, this call of the laity to be saints and to evangelize the modern world. And he said, well, you know, congratulations. The church in a solemn way has recognized what you taught and has recognized the role of the laity. And he said something to the effect, Your Eminence, this can only occur if the laity are contemplatives. If they're not, they're going to be swept away like everybody else. And I don't know what the poor cardinal said. He probably said, oh, okay. <laughs> well, sorry. It's the last time I congratulate you. A, a, a very key response especially for our purposes. Without wringing our hands, well, why wasn't this person positively influenced by me? Let me look at my conversion annual report. How many people have converted because of me? Or how many people at my place of work or, you know, at home notice my sanctity? Well, let's not go there. That's the Lord's department, what is posted on our apostolic Facebook or, or our apostolic annual report. What I've got to look at is my life of contemplation, my dialogue with him, because that, whether I see it or not, because matter of fact, the Pharisees approached Jesus and said, well, when, when's this thing going to work? You know, when's the kingdom coming? What are the signs that this kingdom is coming? Is this thing working? And Jesus says, don't look for signs. I mean, they're nice. You know, we're Americans, so we look at it a little bit. We're result-driven. That's not always a bad thing. It's not a good thing if it's an absolute. And Jesus said, well, don't go there. And I have to say it in Latin because they don't translate the Latin word intra, literally. Intra is within. They translate it in the midst of. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Fine. But for our purposes, we really need the literal translation, which is, behold, the kingdom of God is intra vos, vos meaning you, inside of you. That's the literal translation. Behold, the kingdom of God is inside of you. It's being a contemplative. Towards the twilight of St. Jose Maria's life, he received, I don't know if it was his last locution. What were his locutions? Well, all of a sudden, scriptural passages in Latin would just appear in his mind. 
out of nowhere. It was happening periodically throughout his life, not very often, but once in a while. And this locution was from the book of Isaiah. It was in Latin. And the phrase is, clama necessis. This was as he was contemplating all the defections in the church and the doctrinal ignorance and moral relativism that started to begin in the late 60s, early 70s. Our Lord inspired him with that phrase, your response and, and get this out to your people, pray without ceasing. That's what it means. Clama, clamor, without stopping. Using Jose Maria's homily toward holiness for some ideas here. In recommending this unbroken union with God, am I not presenting an ideal so sublime that it is unattainable by the majority of Christians? Certainly the goal is high, but it is not unattainable. The path that leads to holiness is the path of prayer. And prayer ought to take root and grow in the soul little by little, like a tiny seed, which later develops into a tree with many branches. We start with vocal prayers, which many of us have been saying since we were children. They are made up of simple, ardent phrases addressed to God and to his mother, who is our mother as well. I will renew morning and evening, and not just occasionally, but habitually, the offering I learned from my parents. Oh, my lady, my... My mother, I offer myself entirely to you and in proof of my filial love. First one brief aspiration, then another, till our fervor seems insufficient because words are too poor. Then this gives way to intimacy with God, looking at God without needing rest or feeling tired. We begin to live as captives, as prisoners. And while we carry out perfectly as we can with all our mistakes and limitations, the tasks allotted to us by our situation and duties, our soul longs to escape. It is drawn toward God like iron drawn by a magnet. One begins to love Jesus in a more effective way with the sweet and gentle surprise of his encounter. Sometimes we dialogue with our Lord in listening and loving people. Sometimes we speak to our Lord in the dead moments. St. Maria would tap on people's shoulders out of the blue. Hey, how many times did you tell Jesus you loved him? You know, what did you do with your time, those two minutes going from one place to another? Could be extra decades of the rosary when we're driving. Uh, but I would say the, the key to this is that we take good care of our meditation our mental prayer, and if possible, we notice how we do it here. We, we do our mental prayer, and then we have Mass. Our mental prayer is before anything. It's before the tabernacle. It's before Mass. And then we have that extended period of time after Mass. That's part of the secret of being a dialoguer with our Lord, because that's kind of the boiler room. That's the energy source, these principal times of silence. We do the best we can. The rosary in a good place sometimes. The best we could do because that's the only time that allows for it is on the train, in the car. But if we could do it in a contemplative place as much as we can, 
It's an investment of being able to witness Christ to others. Mary, you're the greatest contemplative. You love your rosary so much because it's a form of contemplation of the life of your son together with you. Pray for us, Mary. Win for us the grace to be enthused and eager to dialogue with your son a lot more. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.